the book of Romans. Last week we started a series uh, on this chapter of the Bible, which some have said is uh, the Bible's greatest chapter. Uh, I don't know if I can completely make that uh, assertion for myself, but I do love what Paul says to us in Romans. There is much of the Scripture's condensed in this teaching. Last week we started by reading Romans chapter 8. We read the entire chapter. This morning I want us to read Romans chapter 8 considering last week's verses and this week's verses because these things do build off of each other. And, and as we look at this, hopefully you'll be able to see if you were with us or, or if you were in life group last week how these things merge together. So if you've got your Bibles, Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1 There is, therefore now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Let's go back to verse 5 and read through verse 11, which are our verses for the day. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You, in my home growing up, my mother and father had phrases that they would use regularly. Uh, Cliches, if you will. Did anyone in the room grow up where your mom and dad had go-to phrases to deal with your 
let's just be honest, with your wrongdoing, with to help correct and send you in a direction. Some of those phrases that I would hear from my mom and my dad and even my grandmother who I spent much of my childhood and most of my teenage years with, uh, these phrases have stayed with me and they're things that come to my mind even though they don't always uh, make the most sense. uh, These phrases are helpful for us. Do me a favor. I want you to look to the person to your left or to your right and just share with them what was a phrase that your mom and your dad said to you when you were growing up or that you may have said or maybe even still say to your child that you repeat regularly. So let's share those with the people around us. Some of my my favorites from my grandmother uh, sound like this. Uh, One, she would say, I will say to my goodness. And I I still have no clue what that means. Her most popular one that she would use whenever she was frustrated with myself, or really, as the older brother, I can say this, when she was frustrated with my younger brother, uh, was something to the effect of, I will cloud up and rain all over you. Like she's Thor. Um, One of the ones that my mom used all of the time whenever she would give us a task or a chore to accomplish or when we would be looking at a project that we had to do that we did not want to do, that we were dreading, especially when there were certain aspects of this project that stood out the most, was this. She would say, you need to eat the crust first. And that would always be followed by this long description as to why she would ever come up with this phrase. She came up with this phrase because she had a friend growing up who hated pie crust. Of all of the things in life to hate, I'm not sure if pie crust should be the one, but this friend hated pie crust. And the directions that were given to him by his mother were not just leave the crust... She would tell him, you eat the crust first. You eat the part that you don't want so you can enjoy the rest. Now, again, in a world where we don't eat as many carbohydrates, maybe eating the crust is not the best idea. But when my mom would say this to me, it stood out. It stayed with me when there were things that I needed to do. I would make the list if I made the list because I like lists. And I would accomplish the thing that I did not want to do first. I would try to get that thing done. When we read through Romans chapter 8, we can look at it very much like a pie. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, say to us, this is what this whole thing is about. And the whole thing is about this very important truth. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is what the entire book of Romans has built to. This is at the the cusp of what the scriptures are teaching. This is a scriptural truth to us saying this is who Jesus is. And if you are in Jesus, this is hope. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we were to take verse, skip over verses 5 through 11, we then see all of these promises that God gives to us. And these promises are things that we quote. 
These promises are things that we hold fast to. These promises are things that we present to people. These promises are posted on Pinterest and Facebook. These promises are verses that we use when we're in conversations with someone about how good God is to us and about how good God offers to be to them. And these promises are things that we benefit from and that we can find much joy in. Romans chapter 8, 12 through 17 tell us that we are the children of God. Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25 say that sufferings, they have a point. Your struggles, your hardships, they have a point because they lead to a future glory. Verses 26 and 27, all of these we'll deal with over time. But just a snapshot this morning, in 26 and 27, we are told that the Holy Spirit of God intercedes on our behalf. Speaking to God things that we don't even know need to be said. Verses 28 through 30, God's promises can be fulfilled in you because of Christ Jesus. For 31 and 32, God promises that he is for, he is for you. Verses 33 through 34, God secures you in Jesus. That's a promise. Verses 35 through 39, we are more than conquerors in this life, even though we may be feeling like sheep who've been led to slaughter. These are all of God's promises. But we have to digest what is really difficult about this passage in 5 through 11 because what we learn in 5 through 11 is these promises aren't for everyone. The promises of God are not for everyone. So for those of us who are unbelievers, hear me this morning. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, these promises are not things that you can claim as your own. And for those of us who are believers, these things that we read in 5 through 11 should create a sense of urgency in us for those who are around us who are outside of Jesus. Because one of the things that we say over and 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 over here. Did you see it on our church newsletter when you receive that? If you don't receive that, go to our church website. You can subscribe on literally every page. Is that we believe that Jesus is better. And the reason that we would say and that we would believe that Jesus is better is because of who he is and the promises that he offers to us, but if you are outside of Jesus, these promises are not true for you. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, our hearts should be burdened for those who are not in relationship with Christ. Because if we do not have a burden for those who are outside of relationship with Christ, I just simply want to ask, what is the unique difference in you and that person? If we do not have the burden for the loss that Christ does, do we have the Christ that we claim is so magnificent? Romans 8, 5 through 11, again, shows up and it says to us, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. And immediately, you have a compare and contrast in this text where it separates and it shows us there are two lives being led. One of those which will lead to destruction and one of those which is in line with the life that Christ offers. So the first thing we see, if you're a note taker, there are there's a, a bit of an outline in your uh, worship guide you were handed this morning that also provides a devotion for you. The first thing that we see is character. 
the comparison and contrast of character in this text. That you can have two people, and the only difference in them is the person of Jesus. But that's not simply the only difference. It's a massive difference. Those who are in Christ Jesus live according to Christ Jesus, have life and peace because of Him. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. So you see these two, this tension. They can look alike, sound alike, work at the same place. They can smell alike. They can cook alike. They can eat alike. They can spend time with one another, and they can have the same group of friends. But there is one who is in the flesh, one who is outside of the flesh, one who is in Christ, one who is outside of Christ. Well, clones are really popular. I don't know if you're a book reader or you're into science fiction, but the one of the tropes of any type of media storytelling, one thing that we come to over and over, whether it's sci-fi, fantasy, if it is comedy, it's the idea of the twin or the clone. I love the concept of twins. I love the concept of clones. I, didn't, I never wanted twins. I'm not into having two babies that you raise at the exact same time. If that's your blessing, then praise the Lord for, for you. But when you look through science fiction, you can see two people, clones. Oh, my children are in a season of their life where they're watching uh, through various television shows. And in some of these, you'll see this trope. My, the, the first show that my boys ever tackled was the Andy Griffith Show. And if you spend much time with Shepard, you'll realize that he has watched far too much Barney Fife. Their next show is on Hulu, and it's based, and it started in 1988, called Family Matters. Anyone remember Family Matters? Family Matters is about the Winslow family, but if you watched more than one episode, you realize it's not about the Winslow family. It's about one person. This is a show about Steve Urkel. And if you don't know who Steve Urkel is, he pulled his pants up to underneath his uh, rib cage, and he would wear suspenders, and he would continually talk about cheese and ask why did he do that. Now, when Shepard and I were having a conversation about Steve Urkel, I said, I can't wait until you get to Stefan Urkel. Now, if you are unfamiliar with Stefan Urkel, he is the mirror image of Steve. When you watch the show, you see that Steve Urkel is a... Young man who is not suave. He is not the, the coolest in your typical 1980s sitcom sense of cool. Stefan Arkell is all of those things. You have this mirror image of this exact same person who looks like another person, yet there is a unique difference in them. Romans 8, when you look through 5 through 11, you see this unique difference in these two people. And this unique difference in these two people is a unique difference that we should see in each of us. Those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. Now, because the Bible uses phrases that we don't use a lot, uses words that we don't always uh, use in everyday vernacular, we kind of have to break down what the flesh is. What does Paul mean when he talks about the character of the one outside of Jesus living according to the flesh? So if you're a note taker or a writer or any of those things, the flesh is those who share the corruption and the finality of the world in which we live. And it's rebellion. 
God made the world. The Bible teaches us this in as early as the book of Genesis because it doesn't get earlier for us. God made the world and it was good. Because of what sin is, something that comes into the world, it distorts and shatters what God's goodness is. It corrupts it. And flesh, this word that Paul uses over and over to talk about the character of the non-believer, flesh highlights the corrupted, wrong use of the world in which we live. It's the idea of corruption, finality, to be in the flesh leads to death. To be in the flesh is, is constant rebellion. The next thing that we see in verse 6 is after we look at the character of these two, we see the consequence. To set the mind on the flesh is death. For you to set your mind on the flesh means that there is never anything that works in you that draws you away from the corruption, the finality, and the rebellion of the world. And that will utterly lead to death. Now, who does this? Are there people who set their minds on things of the flesh who are in right relationship with Jesus? This, when we look through this text, and we read through all of Paul's writing and all of the teachings of the Scripture, we can see these Consistent truths that are there. Every one of us will struggle and have tension in our hearts with, with worldly and with worldly ungodly things. But if there is never a desire for what is not worldly, if there is never a desire for things that are greater and more meaningful, if there is never a desire for redemption and good then you may have a mind that is set on the flesh. No matter how many days of your lives you have sat in seats like this. No matter how many vacation Bible schools you attended as a child. To set the mind on the flesh is death. Well, how would we define that? That Setting your mind on the flesh is to think continually and constantly desire things that that are characteristic of our fallen, sinful Human nature. The best phrase I've seen for this is for us to chase what those outside of Christ chase with no thought as to what God thinks. To set your mind on the flesh is death. But Paul's been building to this. Like you can read through the book and he's been talking about law and flesh and struggle. In in chapter 5 verse 20, he talks about the reason the law is given. Uh, The law is good. And I think that we kind of can confuse that at times in our understanding of Christianity. Much um, even more so because many of us struggle with the idea of over liberty. But, But when you read through this, as we look to what scripture teaches us, the law was given... Romans 5, verse 20. I'm not making this up. It's straight Paul. The law was given to increase sin. Romans 5, 20 says, The law came in so that transgression would increase. In other words, the law was never the remedy and is not the remedy for our, condem- for our condemnation or our rebellion. In fact, it is given to turn our inner rebellion into more blatant and visible transgressions. 
So when we're given directions by, in the law in the Old Testament, when people would read these, they were given so that you would see, this is hopeless for me. We all know what it's like to give directions that are concrete and literal for someone to follow. Your child is doing something wrong. Anyone ever have that happen? Or just, just a 205 Rock Rose? Okay. When your child does something wrong, they know they're doing something wrong. That's why they go side-eye at you before they do it. That's why they try to act sneaky. When they do something wrong, every person in this room who has ever parented, every person in this room who has ever taught, every person in this room who has ever corrected, every person in this room who has ever redirected a child has said something to this effect. If you do that again, this will happen. When we read through what Paul writes to us in Romans... And he gives us this passage. He is saying to us, the law that God has given to us that is good is saying to every person, when you do this again, not even if, but when you break God's law again, this will happen. And this, this what will happen is death. I don't know if our hearts are moved by that at all. But those who are in our lives, those who we work with, those who we spend time with, those who live in our neighborhoods, who are outside of relationship with Jesus, are on a crash course with final death. And if this does not stir our hearts to be more loving, more gracious, more hope-filled, then I'm not sure if grace has taken hold, if love is something that we've embraced, if hope is something that we really know. The idea that the text teaches us over and over and over again, the wages of sin are death. To set your mind on the flesh is death. But those who set their minds on the Spirit, it's life and peace. It doesn't mean it's all good. It just means that we realize this is not all there is. And when the Lord has set Himself as our Lord, when we see that's who He is, because He's Lord whether we want Him to be or not, Look, one of the phrases that churches have used, especially in the 21st century, is that we want to make Jesus Lord of our lives. You don't make Jesus. That's who he is. You don't make Jesus Lord no more than you make water wet. He's Lord. But there is an acknowledgement and a submission to that. And those who have set their minds on the things of the flesh are living in this consistent rebellion where they are saying, He is not. And for our hearts not to be moved by rebellion towards the Lord may mean that we just have a rebellion that's a little more acceptable. The consequence to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. Why? There's a cause for this in verse 7. You see that. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. 
Have you ever wondered that? Why in the world do they keep doing that? Why does the person who is caught up in whatever sin we view as worse than our own, why do they keep saying that? Why do they keep drinking that? Why do they keep smoking that? Why do they, why do they keep batting that? Why does their pride keep swelling up? Why does their rage, why does their anger, why, 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 why? Why are they never broken over that? Their heart doesn't submit to God's law because it can't. Hostile. They're they're at war with one another. We're not talking European hotel rooms either. We're talking a clash that's there. Uh, Four children in our house. Two of them are brothers. Or three of them actually are brothers. I I can count better. But the older two, um, they clash. And I've actually seen it because we spend time with lots of you guys and your kids. And if you have brothers and sisters clash, brothers clash. And I see it with other brothers too. Imagine that you're like, just think through this. If you've ever watched two sets of brothers or three sets of brothers get together to play, they they pair up. And how do they pair? It's never these brothers versus those brothers. They always split up. They split up because they're hostile towards one another. If you're watching them play football in your yard, when these brothers are clashing with these, when these brothers split up, you've got this tandem against this tandem, and their tone with one another is completely full of rage and anger. Brothers fight all of the, the there's this hostile clash that's there. It's the idea that when you are pushed by something, that you would push back. When Shepard and Charlie go at one another, when one pushes the other, there's an immediate push back. The law is consistently... So so God gives us direction. He shows us a way. And the law is God directing us. But our hearts will always, always, always push back against Him. No, I don't, I don't want your direction. I don't want your course correction. I don't want your law to, to send me in a, on a way. Consistently push back against. God gets that. And all those whys that we ask, I think Paul gives us in three words, four if you count a conjunction to be two different words. The reason that the people in our lives who are outside of Jesus continually push back against what God would say to them is because they cannot find unity with Him on their own. They push back against God because that's where their hearts and minds are set. And they are unable to fix that in their own power. The law is a letter. And it's not a good letter. We, we live in a world where we don't really send letters anymore, like handwritten old school letters. When you get something in the mail now, when you get a letter, it is either someone trying to get you to apply for something you can't afford, or it's someone 
sending you a bill for something you already have that you can't afford. And when you get those bills, that's what the law is. The law is saying this is what you cannot live up to. This is what you owe and you cannot pay it. Well, it's August. We've got college kids about to go to college. And as you guys go to college, here's what's going to happen. You're going to get to your cafeteria at your school, and they're going to give you a swipey card where you can eat cafeteria food. And when you walk through the school and you eat your cafeteria food, you may not realize that someone's paying the tab for that. So while you're throwing breadsticks around as a college student or you're handing out Chick-fil-A sandwiches if you're at one of those Christian schools or like public schools that just like good chicken, if while you're doing this, there's a bill that's there, you more than likely don't pay the bill. When you get your books and your textbooks, uh, you don't pay for those. You just hand them the swipey card and there's someone at home who's sweating it out over that. When you pay for the classes, someone's paying for the classes. All of these things that if you're not thinking about in focused on, in foc- with your focus, someone is taking care of those things who is outside of you. Let's imagine that you've got all of this happening and, and this bills that are accumulating that you don't realize. Someone's at home who's going to take care of those. Mom... And dad, mom or dad, mom and dad in some type of unity working this out to make sure they pay for your bills. Let's imagine that one of those parents shows up at your school and they get by the RA. When they get by the RA, they knock on your door. They tell you, we're going to eat the best dinner ever tonight. You go down to the car with them wondering what has gotten into your mother or father. Why are they telling you that you're going to eat the best dinner that you've ever eaten? They told you to eat ramen noodles for the whole four years you were here. And if you stayed longer than four years, you were on your own. They then share with you that they got a phone call, and that phone call was that the bill was, had been paid. And they asked the question that every parent asks, well, what's the catch? If you find out that there's something that's been paid for you, who's paying this, and what do I have to do? Am I in indentured servitude? Do I have to move somewhere far, far away? What do I need to do because you've paid this bill? What do I owe? You don't have to do anything is what the person on the other line said. What do you mean you don't, I don't have to do anything? Nothing. So mom and dad begin to do the numbers. They crunch the spreadsheet. They look at the paperwork. They've got the Google spreadsheet out because we're here in Lake Jackson. That's what we do. And while they're looking at the Google spreadsheet, this person says, no, I did not just pay for your child's school this year. It's paid for every year. What do you mean it's paid for every year? Every single year, mom and dad begin to move money from one place to the other. Well, since I don't have to pay for this, I'll make sure that I go ahead and take care. No, sir, you don't understand. I've already taken care of that, too. I've taken care of room. I've taken care of board. I've taken care of breadsticks. I've taken care of everything. What do you mean? You've taken care of everything. Everything that your child owed, owes, or will owe, I've provided for. Dad's taking you to the nicest restaurant in town. To the best place that there is. Because there's a bill that's been paid that he was struggling to pay. And someone interceded on his behalf. Look, the gospel of Jesus is one of these deals where we have to realize this is God paying a bill. Not that we were struggling to pay, but that we were told over and over, you can't. That we were 
hopeless in dealing with. And he said, I know you're hopeless. That's why I've provided hope. Jesus inserts himself. And then when he inserts himself, what we find is that it's not the way that we think as modern Americans. Someone paid my bill. I've got to make sure that I take care of this. When Jesus pays the bill, it's not a matter of him dealing with our current sin and our past sin. What Jesus deals with, no condemnation takes us here. Not just your current and your past, but your future. Because if Jesus does not take care of the future sins, you're in a real problem because you're going to commit sins that you don't even know you commit. He pays everything. But my goodness, how many of us are trying to make God happy with silly behavior? How many of us are trying to make God happy by acting a certain way? By making sure that we're kind and making sure that we're polite and making sure that we bake the occasional cake or cookies for our neighbor. If you don't do that, I would like for you to bake those for them and bring me some as well. But making sure that we do these things over and over and over as if our salvation was God dealing with our current sin backwards rather than all of our sin ever. Jesus deals with sin at the root and he deals with sins that will shoot off. It's All dealt with. And for us to be people who are looking at the lives of those who are outside of Jesus with no desire whatsoever for that hope to be found in them is reckless and godless. So, what's the conclusion that we're, that we see? Verse 8. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But Jesus offers a massive clarity to us through Paul. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So every promise moving forward isn't his. It's not hers. No no matter how much they show up at stuff, no matter how kind and nice they are, if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you are not Christ. That's simple. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, so you're still going to struggle... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. Your struggle is not forever. God will not cancel His right relationship. God does not cancel His covenant with you because you are faithless. He holds His covenant with you because He's faithful. And His faithfulness does not have limits for the believer. It is limitless. It is forever without a but or a how or a correct yourself. 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
we're working towards resurrection because the Bible always is. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. Your life is based in His Spirit. This is massive. It has massive implications. It has massive ramifications for us as followers of Jesus. And here's why. For the Jewish people, their idea of the presence of God, which is exactly what Paul's talking about. It's what Paul's known. Paul was a super-duper Pharisee. He was really good at being good, according to Sally Lloyd-Jones. Paul forever and forever has heard and learned and known and even taught that the Old Testament says that the Spirit of God shows up in the temple. Anybody ever read that in the Bible? Okay, good. <laughs> We're going to work at standing up and sitting down, shaking your head at me when we need heads to be shaken. All these things. We're going to work through it together year after year. Uh, day after day. The Spirit of God is in the temple. The presence of the Lord is at the tavern. We see this in the Old Testament. But now, because of the person of Jesus and the debt that he's canceled, the Spirit of God does not limit himself because no one limits God outside of God. God provides the places that he, he says, I'll show up at the temple. Now it's no longer the Spirit of God dwelling in the temple. He dwells in you and me because we've become the temple. The Spirit of God in believers is the temple. The presence of God is no longer somewhere that we go. It's something that we are. If the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. For those of us who don't know Jesus, that's not there. And God invites you to that over and over. The Scriptures are this massive invitation of God to people. Know me. Love me. Trust me. It's God's overwhelming, recurring, and repetitive grace towards those of us who are outside of Christ. Trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me, trust me. But for those who are in Jesus, you've been raised, Jesus raised you from the dead, and His Spirit, God, fully dwells in you. And this launches us into every promise that the rest of this text gives. God is in those of us who are His. It's His claim on us. And that claim does not change because we mess up. Because He's already said, yes, that tension is there, but I'm there to override it. So this morning, I just would hope and I would pray that when we sing songs, that we don't take this for granted. Because a heart that continually takes this for granted may be a heart that's set fully on the flesh. This is God's hope for us. God's hope that the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead, He dwells in you. And He will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. I you to bow your heads with me this morning. Comparison and contrast. We, we hear this. We, we see this. We know this. We can acknowledge this in the text. 
Do our hearts acknowledge this? How many of us are outside of relationship with Jesus? And even this morning, as he presents this very difficult compare and contrast, Paul does. He's using that to invite you to know him. To acknowledge that, Jesus, I need you because my heart's set on death, but I want life that you offer. How many of us have a hard time when this text tells us that your sin debt has been canceled forever? Not just your past and present, but your, your future. Jesus deals with all sin and all that would condemn you. How many of us need to turn our frustration with the people in our lives who are reckless and godless over to the Lord and just begin to beg Him to save people? Not argue with them because they disagree with you. Not Avoid talks about things that are secondary because honestly, those who are outside of Jesus... Those who are outside of Jesus cannot please God. They just can't. And by our action and interaction with them in a way that is unpleasing to God, we're telling them that their behavior can. What if we just prayed that God would save our neighbors? We would, God would save our coworkers. What if our conversations with them were, hey, let, I don't know what you're going through, but I know who Jesus is and I, and I trust him. Because the Spirit of God dwells in you. What we are saying is that though there is tension, when someone outside of the Christian faith spends time with someone who is, they are in the presence of the Lord because the Spirit of God dwells in you. How much of our sinful tension suppress them seeing that that presence is there. As we sing, I would invite you to spend some moments just praying. Praying for God to move in your heart and in our midst. Praying for God to save lost people. Because those people, those who are outside of Jesus cannot please God. And that God would help us to wrestle with the tension when we want to set our minds on things of the flesh. That God would direct us to the life and peace that he's offered us in Jesus. If you need me, I'm...